Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The biggest political story of the week happened on Wednesday, January 6th, when Congress affirmed the Electoral College votes for Joe Biden. But what also happened will go down in history when mobs of supporters of President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol and broke into the House and Senate chambers. It was a failure of security where members of Congress had to be evacuated and taken to undisclosed locations. We'll speak to Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, who was in the Capitol while it was being raided. She'll share her experience with us, and we'll also discuss the fallout. Many people in both parties are calling for President Trump to be removed after initially encouraging his supporters and then continuing to dispute the election. You know, I've covered Congress in Washington for nearly a decade. I've worked in the Capitol building hundreds and hundreds of days. But at first, it seemed normal. There are protests outside the Capitol on a regular basis. And I was sitting in the rotunda watching as the senators walked back to their chamber from the House, watching as Mike Pence followed behind them. I I shouted a question at him. And then I realized I could hear the protest inside. They had surrounded the building. They were on both sides of the building. I started watching them out the windows and I could see that they were coming over the barricades and the police were just overwhelmed and swamped and they could no longer do anything to stop them. It was at that point I went out into a hallway and the police started shouting at us to get away from the windows and then to take cover. And it was at that point I began to hear the protesters inside the building. They were at that moment, uh, floor two below me. They had entered on the first and second floor. I was on the third floor. And we locked ourselves into our workspace, which is in that sort of a tiny attic on the fourth floor above the Senate. Obviously, we have seen what developed. Four people ended up dying, three for medical conditions. But one person, a woman, was actually shot and she was taken to get some help, but she later died. Did you hear any of those gunshots? I was above the Senate and the woman who was shot by Capitol Police was on the House side of the building. So for any listener who's never been inside the Capitol, it's really about the size of a city block. It's quite large building. So I couldn't hear it. But we at that point were reporters, television producers sort of hunkered down. In this office, we had turned the lights off, we had barricaded the doors, and then we were just watching, watching our televisions, watching Twitter, trying to see what had happened, hearing from our colleagues that were on the other side of the building or in some of these places, getting emails. And so we were sort of watching it come in in real time and then listening to make sure that they hadn't found our door, they hadn't found our little space. We covered up the words press, fearful that if they did find us and they knew who we were, we would be in danger. And we just waited. So we knew that there was gunfire. We knew that someone had been shot. We were sort of trapped in the space that we had been. Did you spend the entire time there or did you get evacuated somewhere else? Or how many hours were you barricaded down? Yeah, so we were barricaded for about two hours and 45 minutes. It took that long before we could be evacuated from the building. It took over an hour before law enforcement made it to us. So there was a big amount of time before we even heard what was going on or that anything had been secured. 
police did eventually evacuate us. We went to a secure location. We were held basically in the same place as some of the senators. So they asked us not to tell people where we were held, but we were held there. They gave us dinner and I spent another two hours there in a heavily guarded room with those folks there. Lots of FBI agents with large guns stood outside the door. And then after about two hours, they let us go back into the Capitol once they had secured the building. Well, I'm very glad that you're safe and made it out of there unscathed and everything. I texted you at one point just so we can maybe do some coverage. And I had no idea you were going through all of that you know, at the time. So as I said, I'm just happy that you're safe for all of this. You did talk about the Capitol Police and all that. Security is a huge issue. And a lot of people are just flummoxed about how this could have happened there. They knew there was going to be a lot of protesters. Maybe, obviously, nobody thought that they would be raiding the Capitol building. You know, we're hearing words like insurrection, sedition, mobs, terrorists, domestic terrorists. All these things are being thrown around. And really, the police force there was just not prepared for any of it. They were not prepared. They were vastly outnumbered. You know, I've seen many protests at that building, whether it was Tea Party protest, Black Lives Matter, a number of protests. And normally you see just a real show of force from the police department. They clearly didn't think that we would see those numbers. The Capitol is normally full of people. The tourists that come in, field trips, people who come in and get tourists from their lawmakers. It hasn't been, obviously, for a long time now because of COVID. And I have wondered if that was why we saw a little bit of a different security posture. The building was empty of those kind of people that would normally be there. And so it was something that was unusual. And I will say it was Capitol Police officers who were protecting us. And some of them were quick to come and try to protect us. But I think that we're going to hear a lot of questions from lawmakers, from people in the media, from the public about how they allowed this to happen. And what if it had been not some who wanted to come in and steal papers off of Nancy Pelosi's right. desk, but someone who had wanted to come in and do quite a bit of harm to them. And I think that we're going to see congressional investigations. We saw Speaker Pelosi calling for the chief of Capitol Police to resign. Senate Majority Leader, or incoming Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying that he will fire the Sergeant at Arms of the Senate if he does not resign before he becomes the Majority Leader on January 20th. And so I think that there's been a beginning of questioning and investigations into what happened yeah. with the police department. Definitely shown a lot of weakness on that day. And now to all the fallout. None of this stopped what Congress was set to do, affirm Biden's presidential win. It happened. A bunch of senators that were set to continue opposing the electoral votes, came back and said, it's not worth it. We're not going to do it anymore. The tone of the whole thing changed, obviously. And we didn't see anybody really speaking up. There was a couple more objections, but those got smoothed over pretty quickly and they affirmed his win. And now we're seeing all sorts of stuff. Calls for impeachment again, invoking the 25th Amendment to remove President Trump. He had to make a video message. He tweeted a couple of things. Everything that he did was completely weak in trying to control anything. He didn't really want to, it didn't seem like. And we're seeing cabinet officials resign. Mick Mulvaney, his former acting chief of staff, had some very interesting words saying the president hasn't been the same the past eight months. This is his new legacy. We had some successes, but this is all Trump now. And really nobody happy with the president at all. I mean, we're seeing Republicans and Democrats say that he should be removed from office using the 25th Amendment, a means that allows the vice president and the cabinet to determine that he's incapacitated or unfit for office. I would be surprised if we saw that happen, but it is it not been ruled out. 
publicly at least by the vice president or any members of the cabinet. So it remains an option on the table. Speaker Pelosi said that she would support an impeachment if the vice president doesn't do that. But let's be clear, impeachments take time. Even if they moved as swiftly as they could, it would be very difficult to do in the last 13 days. And it would also require the Senate to hold a hearing, a trial. That's unlikely to happen. But we are seeing a concern about how the president behaved yesterday, the role he played in encouraging violence, and the fact that, as you said, he praised these people on Twitter before Twitter deleted the tweets and then took away his access. And because they took away his access, and we still don't know if it's been restored, we haven't heard from him on Thursday. He has not made any public appearances. And so we are waiting to see what he does next and how he moves forward after yesterday. One final question, and we're going to talk again soon for the podcast, but I just wanted to get your last reaction to all of this. A lot of people said when they saw all the madness that was going around, that is not America. A lot of other people said that is America. That shows how divided we are and the anger that's out there. Just final thoughts on the day. I mean, it was sadness. I felt so sad. I sat in a dark room. I locked myself in a closet. At one point, I thought I had heard them and I turned the lights off and I sat my back against the door. And it is a sadness I felt more even than being scared that this is where we are. So I think that just those who say this is not America, it's not. And those who say this is America, it is. We are living this. And I think that you can't help but feel a profound sense of sadness about what unfolded yesterday. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Also this week, it became official. Democrats have taken control of the Senate. Both Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff won their Senate runoff races in Georgia, splitting the chamber 50-50, giving Vice President-elect Kamala Harris the tie-breaking vote. For Warnock, he has achieved many historic firsts, including becoming the first black Democrat senator from Georgia. For more on how Raphael Warnock won, we'll speak to Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. When we think about Southern politics, it's very easy to associate it with older, antiquated policies, perhaps a lack of diversity and representation, and even just a general slower pace in the way that politicians pass laws, the policies that they prioritize, and the people and communities that they're thinking about and these policies that they pass and that they draft. But Raphael Warnock, as a senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, as a fat-packed chair of the New Georgia Project, and as a first-time politician, seems to combine a number of different worlds. The old South of the Black Church and of the Black prophetic tradition and the New South of targeting Black voters and rural voters, young voters, first-time voters, and including as many people as possible in the democratic process and making sure that they not only are registered to vote, but that they turn out, they mobilize on behalf of Democrats, and that they have a role in the political process and in the policy debates that are set to take place. And so the folks that I've talked to about Raphael Warnock and the campaign of course, talking to them, they've made it very clear that they believe that this candidate, now Senator-elect, Raphael Warnock, is, again, a combination of all of these worlds and that he'll bring that knowledge of both the Old South and the New South. He will apply it in his own governing strategies 
now as senator this year. Yeah, he's going to be the first black Democrat from Georgia, the first black Democrat from the South. Really an impressive win there. And he had to fight back a lot of attacks from his opponent, Kelly Loeffler, attempts to basically, you know, make him look like he was a socialist, just really a lot of attacks on his character and the way he would be operating there in the Senate. And really none of that worked. No, Raphael Warnock was indeed the most attacked candidate of all four candidates in Georgia's Senate race. Republicans made a lot of efforts, invested a lot of money into portraying him as a radical, as a Marxist, as a generally dangerous figure. And those attacks in the end really didn't take hold, in large part because a lot of their attacks on Warnock also vilified the black church and black religious, black faith traditions. And overwhelming number of black voters in Georgia are Christians and are religious or practice some kind of faith. They were extremely offended by these attacks and were very vocal about how much they disliked them, not just for the way that Republicans went after their candidate of choice in Warnock, but also in how they attacked their faith and how they attacked their religious tradition that not only encouraged them to turn out in large numbers, but again, it gave them a message to get behind and saying that this is not just a political campaign in the words of one representative or the NAACP president in Georgia who I spoke to, but it's also a moral issue is what he explained to me. Yeah. And it was that overwhelming support from black voters that really won him the seat on this one. We're expected to see John Ossoff win over Republican Senator David Perdue. This would give the Senate an even 50-50 split with Democratic senators and Republican senators, which will be an interesting thing because that sets up Vice President-elect Kamala Harris to be the tie-breaking vote in any of the situations that merit it. So the Democrats are really coming into this with a very strong hand. Joe Biden, president-elect, has an opportunity here to really push through things that are on his agenda and maybe get some action done in Congress, which we haven't seen in a long time. Well, this certainly gives him an opportunity to pass the most ambitious policies that he and his team have been thinking about. And we don't quite know the specifics of those, but we do know they'll likely be along the lines of, of course, COVID relief for communities and communities of color, criminal justice reform and policing reform, and overhaul, perhaps, of the ways that we think about health care or national security. I mean, these are all things, of course, against the backdrop now of really what we're seeing an insurrection on Capitol Hill, I think this puts into perspective just how important some overhauls of policies and the ways that we think about government systems in this country will have to be addressed. And it will ultimately be a huge responsibility of the Biden-Harris administration to address these topics. And they'll certainly need the help of the Senate and the House, which they now, it seems, will have control over. That's kind of step one now. As you mentioned, we're seeing what's happening uh, at the Capitol building. The Biden-Harris administration is going to have to address that first and try to bring people together and calm some of these really inflamed feelings that are going on. That's the first thing to go through and then on to getting the agenda passed. So we'll definitely have to monitor all of that. Maya King, politics reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And this week of big political news all started last weekend. Georgia was the center of the political world as we awaited the runoff elections 
And President Trump made a curious call to the Secretary of State in Georgia to pressure him into recalculating the vote in his favor. It was an hour-long phone call that might have been illegal. And for more on that, we'll speak to Natalie Jennings, editor of The Fix at The Washington Post. So the call was between President Trump and the Georgia Republican Secretary of State. Though while he's a Republican, it seemed pretty clear to anyone who's been following the story that Raffensperger was very certain in the count that he had overseen. And so it's unclear to me why President Trump and his legal team thought that this would be a persuasive venture. Um, Raffensperger has been very consistent that the election and the multiple recounts that have happened there turned out exactly what the voters wanted in that state. And President Trump made a very clear when he was in this that he was looking for just the right amount of votes to reverse the outcome of that election, which is over 11,000 votes. He pointed to a number of conspiracy theories. The Secretary of State and his team were really prepared and sort of knew about all the theories that Trump was mentioning, and you can hear them back them down gently as Trump goes through them. President Trump threatened political consequences, talked about how angry Georgians were, and even threatened criminal liability at one point. So it was a very interesting, very long look into President Trump and where he is on this and how firm a line that uh, Secretary Raffensperger held. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing, really. There's been two recounts, one audit, several judges shooting down several lawsuits in the state over this. And Raffensperger in the call at one point told President Trump, well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is that the data you have is wrong. You know, he's literally telling the president that Everything he's hearing is wrong from all these conspiracy theories and all of that. And you really do kind of hear it where you can see that the president is surrounded by these people that are feeding him this. And then, you know, the state who kind of went through the process as diligently as they could, he's responding, as you mentioned, to all of the different allegations the president is making. It really shows that they really kind of took all the allegations seriously and examined them and still found no evidence. And the fact that... President Trump still thought that some of these could have salience, could change the outcome, really spoke to me about sort of what you're saying, how cocooned he is, both with the people who are around him, who are not doing a good job of discouraging him, or maybe are not allowed to be around him if they're going to be discouraging him from this line of thinking, and also the media he's consuming. We know, looking at President Trump's Twitter feed that he's turning to news sources beyond Fox News, who has verified Joe Biden as the winner, to sources like One American News and Newsmax, people who are more interested in playing in the conspiracy theories that President Trump wants to believe are true. There was a lot of questions raised about the legality of the phone call. Was President Trump trying to pressure the Secretary of State in Georgia? What have we been hearing on that front? So there are questions about that and using pressure to change the will of the populace in a free and fair election. There is federal law against that. What I'm seeing from legal scholars now is that you do have to prove some intent, some knowing disregard for the truth, and that is hard to prove. So who's to say the legal argument could go, whether President Trump actually believed what he's saying or whether he is willfully bending the truth and proving that he's doing the former would be difficult. So the legal question is an interesting one to consider. Certainly, is dangerous legal ground for him to be on, but it's not super clear what the outcome of any legal action based on this would be. Natalie Jennings, editor of The Fix at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.